0: Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast. The Book of Romans is truly one of the high peaks of the Bible. It is an intimidating mountain to climb, but the view from the top is well worth it. In the first four chapters, we hear that all have sinned, but the Apostle Paul takes us to the heart of why Jesus is such good news. We discover that his gospel changes everything about how we see the world. It means peace peace. It promises holiness, it beckons us to freedom, and it calls for love. For more information and audio content, please visit us at neac.com.au. Danny, I'm going to bring you the first Bible reading, uh, which is Genesis 17, 1-16, on page 14 of your pew Bibles. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. With the born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her.
1: G'day, I'm Ben. I'll be reading us our second bowl reading. Uh, It's Romans 4. Verses 16 to 25, and that's found on page 1115 of the Pew Bibles. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification.
2: Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Roger Bray. I'm one of the ministers here. It's great to be with you here this evening, and uh, we have the great privilege of looking at that passage from Romans together, and you might like just to look up that, uh, keep that passage open as we come to it uh, this evening as well. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the great privilege we have of coming to your word this evening, and we ask that as we look at it together, that you would speak to us and help us understand it so that our lives might be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 16 or 17, I belonged to a youth group which was pretty full on, Uh, like we were really, really committed kind of people. Uh, In fact, each Sunday afternoon, we would go door knocking our local area. So my girlfriend and myself would go out on a Sunday afternoon and we'd walk up to people's doors and knock on their doors and do a survey with them. Uh, The survey had all kinds of things in it, like, you know, how old are you? What kind of work do you do? Those kind of things. But it finished with the question, if you were to die tonight and go before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now, to be honest with you, I think the survey was a little bit disingenuous because actually that's the question we wanted to ask and that's the conversation we wanted to have. What would you say to God? Why should he let you into heaven? Now, of course, it produced all kinds of really interesting conversations with people. And over and over again, we heard people repeat similar answers. And in fact, what I've found is in church life, people have similar answers as well. Some of the answers included things like this. Well, um, I should be led into heaven because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Or another kind of answer was because I believe in him and I try to do what he asks me to do. Or another one, which is because I believe in him with all my heart. Those are really interesting answers, aren't they? But each of them, actually each of those answers, talk about our work, what we do. Let me show you. Because I've tried to be a good Christian, well, it's all about what I do. Have I done enough that's good? Will God let me in? Because I believe him and try to do his will, Well, I guess that's a combination of belief and trying. So maybe if I believe and do my part, then God will actually accept me. And then the last one, which sounds kind of right, says, because I believe in him with all my heart, it sounds like actually what you're saying is that your faith is a work. I should be accepted because of my faith as a work. Now, as we come to this last section of Romans... Romans chapter 4, and we're going to take a break from Romans after this and come back to it next year. Paul wants to talk to us about a number of things, but one of the things he wants to talk to us about is faith. And I want to think about three features of the faith he talks about, three features of the Abrahamic faith that he talks about. Uh, If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you will know that he continues to refer to Abraham and use him as an example. So come with me as we come to this passage and look at three features of Abrahamic faith and the way that it applies to us. If you turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 4 and looking at verse 19, we read these words. I'm going to pick up the conversation here. Without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that's... It was, sorry, he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, if you've been listening to the uh, reading from Genesis, you will know that God promised to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations. And in fact, if you look just back a little bit there, you'll see that in verse 18, Abraham believed that he would be a father of many nations. But his faith had to be exercised in a particular way. His faith had to face facts. The fact that he was presented with was that his body was as good as dead and his wife's womb was as good as dead as well. They were basically too old to have children. In fact, there was no hope they were ever going to have children. It just was impossible And so the first thing we see about Abraham's faith is that it faces facts. It faces reality. And indeed, Paul has been doing that with us throughout these last four chapters. He's been pointing out the reality of our situation. Here he points it out by pointing to Abraham and Sarah. But he's also been saying to us, the reality of your situation is that you are without hope before God. If you remember it back in Romans chapter 3, uh, that famous verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of you, every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Or as Colossians 2 puts it, you were dead in your sins. There's a parallel there. Sarah's womb was dead. Abraham was as good as dead. We are dead in our sins. And the truth is, an Abrahamic faith takes into account the reality of the situation. It faces up to the facts. It says, hmm, this is where we stand. But it doesn't only do that. And so we see, as Paul develops his argument in the next verses, we read these words in verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief, regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he was promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Now you notice what happens here with Abraham's faith. He trusts the promises of God. Even though the situation seemed hopeless and it wasn't possible that he would become the father of nations, he'd faced the facts. He said, no, I'm still going to believe in the promise of God. Now, you might notice there it says he did not waver through unbelief. Uh, If you've been listening to the the passage in in Genesis chapter 17, you'll know that actually as the passage unfolds, there is a moment there where it does seem like they've gone, Really? (laughs) Sure, and you actually hear Sarah laughing in the background like, yeah, sure, I'm going to have a kid at this age. But the truth is, as you look over his life and as you consider his life, he actually believes the promise that he's been given. And indeed, as he believes that promise, his faith is strengthened and he gives glory to God. Why? Because he is fully persuaded that God has the power to do what has been promised. So even though he's faced the facts of the situation, he actually is fully persuaded that God will keep his promises. Now, I think that's a really important uh, thing to understand in terms of our faith. Faith is about holding on to the promises of God. Faith is not about looking at itself, uh, faith is actually never interested in itself. Faith looks to God. Faith looks to God's promises. God, faith looks to the faithfulness of God. It says, I trust those promises. God has made a promise. I trust it. Now, that, that kind of has all kinds of implications, and I'm going to digress for a moment here. The implications for the way we live our lives. Ruth kind of mentioned it tonight. It was a beautiful to hear Ruth speak about her faith: to trust the promises of God no matter what happens, that God will walk with her all through life, no matter what happens. That's trusting. The promises of God. God promises to do that. I remember years ago, there's a particular verse that I learned, which has been with me all these years. It says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Boy, that verse has served me over and over again. That promise has served me over and over again. When there's been a family crisis, when I've been unwell, when people have died, when i first faced my own personal crises, what's happened? I've turned to that verse and I've said, the promise is that if I trust the Lord with all my heart, And don't lean on my own understanding, and in all my ways acknowledge Him, He will make my path straight. And time and time again, God has proved faithful. Now, I'm not saying it's always worked out the way I wanted it to at all, and I'm not saying it sometimes hasn't been painful and difficult. But what I am saying is, we're called to trust the promises of God, God's faithfulness. Now here in Romans chapter 4, Paul has a particular promise in mind and he takes us to that promise uh, next as we continue with our passage. Uh, you'll see in, uh, as we look at these next couple of verses in verse 23, these words. The words it was credited to him and speaking about Abraham again were written not for him alone but also for us. Wow. Okay, so the same faith that Abraham has been exercising, were not only written for, was not, these, these words were not only written for him, but for us as well, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, Roger spoke last week about this idea of credited to him. What does it mean? And just to remind you of what we were talking about, um, Paul was talking about this idea of our legal status, our legal position before God. We have been credited with righteousness. That means that we are treated as righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. Let me see if I can illustrate it in this way. Suppose... Your dad says to you, clean up your room. Now, I'm sorry to bring back bad memories, um, but dads tend to do that. And he says to you, clean up your room. And if you don't clean up your room, you cannot go out tonight. If your room is not clean, you cannot go out tonight. And so off you go to school. And you forget about your room. Afternoon gets taken up. Your father notices that this is taking place. And he cleans your room. He tidies it up. When you get home, it's right close time to when you've got to go out. And you come in and you say, oh, look, I'm, 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 te- I'm sorry. Oh, I suppose I won't be able to go out. My room had to be tidy before I went out. And there's just no time. There's no hope. I I can't do it. And your dad says to you, it's okay. I've cleaned it for you. You go. Go and have a great time. Your room is clean. It's been fixed. You're free to go. And that's what's happening here. Paul is reminding us that in light of what Jesus has done, Jesus ha- uh, is reminding us what Jesus has done. He has cleaned our room. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. But Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, comes in and says, let me clean up your mess. Let me deal with your mess so that your room is clean and you can live as if it's clean because I've looked after it. Now, you notice how that faith works? It just says, I accept. I trust the promises of God. I trust that he has cleaned my room. I trust that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for me. I trust that because of that faith, I have been credited with righteousness. Wow. Imagine living like that. Imagine living with that understanding. Well, Brothers and sisters, that's what Paul's saying to us. We can live that way. We can live as people who have been made right because of what Jesus has done. We have been credited with righteousness because of what Jesus has done. So if we think about those questions that we we thought about earlier and we think about this Abrahamic faith, what have we concluded? We've concluded that a faith that's Abrahamic is a faith that faces facts. It knows that we are without hope. It's a faith that trusts the promises of God. And as a result, it's a faith that is credited with righteousness. So instead of answering those questions in the way that we spoke of earlier, where we had to say, well, because of what I've done, when it comes to the question, why should I be let into heaven? The answer simply is, because of what Jesus has done. And I'm credited with his righteousness. I trust in what Jesus has done for me. Please let me in. Can you just take a moment to think about that and let that sink deep into your heart? Because that will change your life. Knowing that truly and really in your life will change everything. It will change every moment of every day.